This is the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 65. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners and we tackle them from the perspective of concealed carriers and law enforcement officers to give you both angles of discussion. Today, it is my very distinct honor to bring you Troy, last name withheld, <laughs> aka uh, ER Doc, and we're going to talk gunshot wounds and emergency rooms. But first, this episode's brought to you by Excess Sights at excesssights.com, photoluminescent paint and tritium technology made in Texas. Excess Sights, check them out. Links in the show notes. Elite Survival Systems, newest sponsor of the podcast. Uh, products for your everyday carry needs since 1979. Don't just survive, thrive. Check out their Guardian and Stealth packs. And I've got their range bag. Uh, it served me very well at uh, Gunsight recently. CCW Safe, as always, uh, save 10% off your membership. Enter code OFFDUTY10 at checkout. And EDC Belt Company, the foundation belt. Also, I wanted to give a shout-out. Uh, they are not a show sponsor, but uh, Sam over at Wilderness, uh, thanks a bunch. She saw that I was in a shotgun class, and uh, I picked up their shell belt and dump pouch recently. And uh, I got to say, that's some quality kit. And thanks, Sam, a ton for that, for... Uh, you know, I got their renegade ankle rig as well and love the renegade ankle rig. So anyway, without further ado, well, actually a little bit, sorry, this week I am having a little bit of the schmoots. So, uh, got a little bit under the weather, but, uh, we shall endeavor to persevere and let's bring in our guest, Troy. Welcome to your inaugural episode of the off duty on duty podcast. Troy, I withheld your last name for, uh, you know, because I, I do that typically with guests if you don't, you know, never been on before and don't want to, you know, disclose a, a too much. So, uh, and so tell me what your, your, your job in life is an ER doc, correct? I am a retired ER doc. Yes. Retired. Okay. Well, congratulations yeah. on making it across Thanks. the finish line. Yeah. Thank you. It's 30 long years, 30 long years. Yeah. Uh, I can, I can only imagine, uh, I had the, the great, uh, pleasure and misfortune of being, uh, assigned to the patrol district. And I've said this on the podcast before that, uh, contained the one level one trauma center in Oklahoma. So every time a, a good guy or a bad guy got hurt or, you know, a serious injury, serious car wreck anywhere in the state, they came there and I ended up having to, you know, hustle up the information and, and, uh, collect evidence and all that. So, uh, it made my court overtime really good, but, <laughs> but aside from that, um, it, it was quite a long 11 years. I'll put it that way. There were two, uh, level one trauma centers when I trained in the whole state of, uh, South Carolina one of them where I was training in Columbia, right mm -hmm. in the dead center of the state. And the other one was in uh, Charleston down on the coast. So we got everything And Columbia had been a capital city and, and had a very diverse and active 
knife and gun club. So you saw a lot of interpersonal trauma. A lot of people have asked me, like, what is a level one trauma center? The only difference between a level one and a level two trauma center usually involves a teaching program. Um, teaching programs uh, have residents that have your surgical resident counts as having somebody in the house 24 seven. Okay. So the only real difference between a level one and a level two, uh, a level one trauma center has, uh, a trauma surgeon. And like I said, third year surgical resident and up counts in house 24 seven. If you are in a municipality like Tyler, which has two level two trauma, well, one level two trauma center and one level one trauma center, the level one trauma center got their level one designation as a marketing thing. Uh, you probably get just as good care at the level two, which is right across the street, but level one sounds better than level two. So they coerced the trauma surgeons there to putting their office close enough where they guys, one of the guys will sleep every night. That's counts as having him quote in house unquote. And, uh, there's virtually no difference between a level one and a level two level threes and fours have less availability. They have surgeons on call. And threes and fours that, you know, you've got a box of band-aids and you want to be in the trauma res- residency or registry, rather, uh, you can be a level four, four trauma center pretty much. I got you. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people would ask me that, you know, I'd, I'd tell them, well, you know, I work the area where there's a level one trauma center. They go, what is that? I'm like, uh, it's where everybody goes. If you get shot, stabbed, run over something massive trauma, that was, so I've never known what really differentiated him. So I appreciate that. that. That's the difference between a one and a two. Most people don't know that. That's a very good question. Uh, having that surgeon in-house versus on call at home and responding. Does that make any difference? Well, we'll talk more about that later about what really is the thing to do to take care of a of a gunshot wound. Okay. So I kind of, wrote down three thoughts and and the the first one was you know what is a gunshot wound and that i I don't mean like okay it comes out of the barrel of a gun and it impacts a you know another person but on on the medical side like what is it it's a question that is a lot more complicated than it sounds like it is on the surface that would go from everything from you know the gamut that i've seen from a kid who took one in the pump with a BB uh, from me and his buddy playing around, you wouldn't think, I guess the paramedics didn't think that the operative word in BB gun wound was gun wound. And that sort of got overlooked. No IV started, no nothing started pre-hospital. We got the kid in. He was um, really, as he was, the paramedics were pushing him up. What, what kids can do is keep their, their vascular system alive until the bitter end. And then they fall off a cliff. And this kid had just done that as they were pulling into the room. He was white as a sheet, had a, a BB that on a quick chest X-ray that we took as the surgeon was screaming to the ER with his Porsche in his Porsche at about setting the land speed record probably hadn't been seen since the Bonneville salt fellas because <laughs> he had heard the anxiety in my voice. I'm sure. So we got this, uh, I think it was about a 10-year-old kid trying to die. We took a quick x-ray while we were waiting on him to get there, and I uh, was thinking about doing a pericardial window because I was pretty sure he had a tamponade. The BB was was uh, was blurry on the x-ray. BBs usually look nice and sharp-edged, but the reason this one was blurry was because it was stuck in his heart. 
didn't have a pneumothorax, which was not a good thing in his case. He would have been much better off if it would have punctured his lung and we could have fixed a, a tension pneumothorax a lot easier than what we had to do. So I was just getting ready to do a pericardial window where it opened up a little area under his diaphragm when the surgeon walked in, rushing the operating, and he did it. But that kid's got a little uh, BB gun, BB, a little 177 round ball that just about took his life on a little necklace that his grandfather made. So it's not what you think of when you think of it as a gunshot. Almost killed him. So, you know, then you've got, as Tom Gibbons likes to talk about when he talk, preaches the gospel of gauge, you know, you don't mess around with shotguns and, and twice because they tend to take body parts off. They don't, they don't put holes in people. They tend to blow chunks off of them. I've seen precious few shotgun wounds to the torso because most of those people don't make it. They're corner cases. They're dead at the scene. But I've seen tons and tons of hunting accidents and things like that where people have uh, you know, lost limbs because those chunks got blown off and everything in between. Uh, high-powered rifle wounds, you know, a completely different animal than a BB gun. All of them will kill you. So you have to respect all of them, I guess. The shotgun, when you mentioned that, I really hadn't thought of it in that context before. I saw lots of them, and uh, mm-hmm. it was um, staggering. staggeringly few of them made it to the hospital yep. uh, when there was uh, buckshot involved. And That is correct. That was that was generally a, a you know an on scene, but the but I, I did see three or four hunting accidents. Dove season is, oh, yeah. uh, which I'm sure in Texas, Oklahoma, dove season is uh, prime time for. I hesitate to call them minor because they're all pretty uh, they pretty serious. But the guy going out to retrieve a dove and pow, and somebody uh, yeah. peppers him with shot, and he ends up with a few in the generally in the face because everybody, you know, it's kind of cold and everybody's wearing kind of heavy clothing. So you wouldn't get a lot of, you know, injury there, but you know, some guy with BBs in the neck and, and, and face, and that was never pleasant, but. but Range is critical when it comes to birdshot. If birdshot happens, birdshot wounds happen very close. The the cluster of pre-fragmented pellets, like the old, Glazer safety slug, that piece of uh, history, for those of us that are old <laughs> enough to remember that, that's how that acts. I mean, it shreds tissue and it hits with like a, like a pre-fragmented slug at close range, and it'll kill you dead as a rock. But uh, you get a, just a little bit of distance, 10, 12 yards, and now you've turned birdshot into uh, an, it's a nuisance through clothing. Um, so it is pretty minor. Uh, so that that's not the shotgun wound I was talking about. I would, right. Like you said, it was buckshot. And at at distance, you know, there's a big difference between birdshot and buckshot. Tom Gibbons gives a perfectly uh, a wonderful explanation of why birdshot is for birds. It's not for people. And there's, you'll still hear people say that, oh, because of over-penetration issues and drywall and yada, yada, you need birdshot in your house. And it's the stupidest thing in the world to do. So I have seen, I have seen one fatality due to birdshot. And this, you know, we're talking about what is a gunshot. And I think that's a very ambiguous, you know, when you say gunshot, that can involve, uh, you know, secondary fragmentation, all kinds of uh, different mechanical injury or ballistic injuries. But the only uh, the only fatality I ever saw to bu- uh, bird shot was uh, a gentleman that caught the wad in the trachea and uh, mm. actually asphyxiated on the scene before the medics got there. 
Wow. Uh, so it was an airway obstruction from uh, poking the, yeah. <laughs> the wad into his neck and, and catching his airway. Mm-hmm. One of my uh, guys that I trained under, the great, the famous William Strohecker, who was a, a graduate of the Citadel uh, and uh, uh, was famous around our uh, our little residency program for for a very profound piece of wisdom that he imparted to us. And that is in his Southern Citadel graduate accent said, Troy, you ain't got an airway. You ain't got diddly. And uh, we, it's absolutely hundred percent true, but the way Stroh delivered that was uh, very memorable 35 years ago or so. Right. That's a good way to die. So, we kind of dove off into it. Uh, you know, what is a gunshot wound? Well, I kind of quantify it as it's just a, it's a ballistic injury. It's a mechanical injury due to a ballistic object, right? Something that's flying through the air that, that, uh, manages to find you. Um, and I've seen gosh, hundreds of them. And one of the, the other thoughts I had was, uh, is there any difference in them? And what does that look like? What makes them different? And I, I kicked that one off. Um, pistols, that was probably, you know, handguns was probably the number one ballistic injury that I saw yep. uh, in my tenure of, you know, in that particular area. And I mainly I just saw holes poked in people from every kind of different caliber. Um, there there was only a couple that were very memorable. The rest of them were pretty, um, you know, if there were lower torso wounds, legs, appendages, things like that, uh, the, the ones that landed high center chest or, or into the, you know, the brain box, they, they tended to be pretty fatal on scene. Um, mm-hmm. But I have seen several in the facial area that, that were survivable, um, and from sure. calibers that you wouldn't think were, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, my experience with handguns, and I don't know if that mirrors yours was they were, um, like take a number two pencil and shove it through and through somebody that, that, and then tell me what caliber it was later. I couldn't really tell at the time, you know? Yeah. Mostly true of, of particularly when you're talking about full metal jacket ammunition and, and that was primarily what we would see because people wouldn't spend money to, make the difference a lot of this stuff that we saw was gangbanger a shoots gangbanger b their little pop gun wounds the times i saw uh, hollow point mechanical injuries tended to be uh you know suspects in police shootings um Mm -hmm. because most agencies carry you know doj and ij standardized you know performing ammunition but there were even exceptions to that um Mm -hmm. i saw yeah i had a dude um got dissed and sprayed the back of a, of a car window, the back window of a car with an Uzi. And the two girls that were sitting in the back of the car uh, took one. You couldn't walk up and, and put them in any better. Exactly, perfectly in the back of their head, just above where if they would have got better penetration, would have gone right to the brainstem. But he was using hollow points. So hollow points opened up on the glass. And um, both, I don't usually tell a lot of bad outcome stories and these kinds of things. So you can pretty much rest assured that the, when you fast forward to the end of it, it's going to be a happy ending. And this was both girls didn't lose consciousness. 
neither of them even had skull fractures. Both of them had small scalp lacerations that bled like stink. But uh, got to pull the uh, flattened hollow points off of their intact skulls, drop them in a specimen dish for the uh, police, and um, wash out the wounds, put a couple, three stitches in, and send them home. And they were perfect bullet placement. I mean, they couldn't have walked up and put it any better in the back of the head. Uh, and so intermediate barriers tend to change things completely. So intermediate barriers. Yeah. The, the stuff I've seen uh, with performance ammunition in police shootings is, uh, and, and I summed this up on a podcast. I can't remember whose it was, but it was like two years ago. And I made this, you know, you ever have one of those comments you make and it just keeps coming back around. Uh, I said <laughs> the the most predictable outcome, even shooting the best ammunition out of the highest quality firearm when it comes to handguns the the most predictable outcome of your bullet performance is there's no predictable outcome yep and i don't see that as much with uh with rifles and shotguns but handguns in particular um i'm sure you were at the the live lab that uh chuck haggard puts on right Uh you did that yeah yeah and a couple of times uh, three i've seen about three different times yeah, every time because you never see you're always surprised. Well, and I, and I always try to make a donation to his uh, lab because, you know, I'm, I've got connections with other agencies. And I'm like, hey, what what ammo are you carrying? Shoot, you know, hand me five rounds mm-hmm. and I try to pass them off to Chuck every time I see him. Yeah, even even in la- almost laboratory grade circumstances, there's still not a lot of predictability. Uh, now, I'm sure he has some because he's got a mm-hmm. data book somewhere of now oh, this is what this does under these circumstances but uh i've even seen it lot to lot in ammunition that changes yeah. uh so uh, two years ago he was doing that at uh, the last revolver roundup that was at dallas pistol club the one before just this one at gunsight and i asked him if he wouldn't mind if he'd shoot one of the barns uh, nine millimeters out of my bond arms bullpup nine which has become my new ankle gun Okay. Uh, rather, rather than the the J frame, show the difference. But that you know, one inch of dwell time, of one inch of barrel length, uh, made because every J frame, you name it, high speed, low drag, whiz bang, hull point, was looked like you could just pop it back in the case and reload it. It didn't open coming out of one and seven eighths inch J frame barrels or Colt barrels, whatever, you know, whatever it was being shot out of that was two inches. But the three inch barrel that was the, um, that the bullpup has, the bullpup nine has, I think could not have opened more perfectly uh, out of the, the nine millimeter. It was just, it performed, did that. It was like, okay, there's my end of one. That's, that's how you can tell if a, a doctor's seen one case or something, because they'll say, in my experience. Right. And, and if they've seen two, they'll say my series. And if they've seen three, they'll say in case after case after case. <laughs> so that's the that's the way you can figure out how many of something a, a doc has seen, depending on how they decide to preempt that. But that was my end of one. Somebody sent me this question to solicit, and it was, what makes what's the difference in uh, ballistic injuries from a pistol, rifle, and shotgun? And mm. 
my my easiest answer was you know pistols poke holes in things shotguns yep. remove things and rifles mm-hmm. kill things dead yep uh, yeah it's velocity and, and and kinetic energy the the quantum leap between uh, even a medium like medium powered rifle like a 762 by 39 or a, or a 223 556 the amount of kinetic energy that gets delivered to tissue reliably is it's just a complete quantum leap instead of a hole like a drill uh, that the handgun is all of those other esoteric things that we aren't going to bore the audience with with temporary cavity and cavitation and, and all of the things that go into the massive ballistic equation that says it, it's just delivers energy where it's supposed to if it if the bullet is well designed and uh, it dumps it where it's where it belongs in the body i've seen several people shot with 762 by 39 mm-hmm. and uh one in the lower appendage like mm-hmm. in the the legs calf thighs things like that and that was an interesting venture because it, best i could tell the 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 perpetrator was shooting that that old like russian steel cord ammo mm-hmm. and where it hit soft tissue it it careened straight through where it hit yeah, exactly a little right. more mass it was just devastating mm-hmm. um almost mechanical amputation devastating uh so yeah and again if you get it if you hit bone um get this bone saw out and clean up the amputation, which is already pretty much done by the bullet. The North Hollywood experience, that shooting is, I can't remember how many it was, but it was nine or 10. You might be able to know this better. Nine or 10 officers were hurt that shot with the 762 by 39 full metal jacket. None of them died there. I do believe it was one guy hitting the pelvis that had a pretty horrible wound. Uh, because again, hit hit the pelvic girdle, which is a, not a good thing to disrupt. A lot of bleeders in there. Like you said, if it hits soft tissue, it's going to take all of its kinetic energy that it has right through. Elastic tissue gets out of the way if it doesn't hit a vessel. A wound that with full metal jacket ammunition was is designed for fighting wars with. Not it, it, it wouldn't be what we'd pick to hunt with. Uh, it doesn't deliver the energy where where you want it to. It'll take most of it right along with it and not deliver it to the tissue. That's the problem with, uh, with, with those and extremity wounds. Now, if that goes through your pump, you're done. Good hunting ammunition, you know, disrupts and delivers a lot of energy to the tissue where it's supposed to. Doesn't zip in, zip out like a, like a full metal jacket does. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing that, that I found pretty interesting and to some degree with handguns with chuck's uh, live lab is when you get rifle ballistics you know a lot of people think hollow point is to make it open up or soft nose is to make it mushroom or whatever and when you get into rifle ballistics it wasn't so much the uh open up expand to to get it to transfer energy as much as it was disrupt the nose of the bullet and create uh, create instability that makes it shed uh, shed uh, energy and yeah it's particularly true when you're dealing with the constraints of the Geneva Convention where you can't use hollow point ammunition you can't use 
a lot of that in fighting wars. Now, in the, in the global war on terror, you, we weren't constrained by that, so we could use good ballistic bullets, the bullets, bullets that did what they were supposed to do when and where they were supposed to do it. So all bets were off on that. Same with civilian law enforcement. You can use what you want um, and not what you have to. Right. But yeah, that was a way to get uh, bullets to cavitate, disrupt, turn over, and give their energy up where they were supposed to and not zip in and zip out with it, if you will. Yeah. So, let's, so, uh, yeah, so what makes them different to me is, uh, you know, the, the type of trauma that they inflict. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of us that carry handguns every day, uh, and I... I'm a firm believer that shot placement is everything. And, uh, and I have seen that firsthand. Uh, I get, I've given the example before a partner of mine around this time of year ended up in a, you know, in a lethal force encounter and fired, uh, eight rounds of 230 grain SXT, which was a really, really good stuff, good stuff right? Bonded SXT, right. When it came Right when it hit the the you know the police issuance there, all of them were kind of diaphragm and below, and mm-hmm. it, it just it just so happened that was about the only target that he really had. And okay. six months later, that guy walked out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, six of them ended up in that torso area. They did it did a lot of damage. I wouldn't have wanted to trade places with the guy uh, by any stretch, but you know, had that shot group been about four inches higher it would have been a completely yeah. different story. And even, uh, even the ER docs were looking at this guy going, uh, we don't know if we can save him, but if that had been, you know, three, four inches, a little further North, this, this would have been, he, he never would have made it to the ambulance, yeah. but corner case. Yeah. We would have called him. He would have been dead at the scene. Right. Yeah. Your, your point's well taken. I, I've heard the quip before that the same three rules of wound ballistics, uh, the three most important roles in wind ballistics are the same as real estate, location, location, location. Right. So, with with handguns. all about that. Yeah. For handguns, for sure. So everybody wanted to know when I solicited it, when I said, hey, I got an ER doc, uh, <laughs> a, a retired ER doc now, uh, coming on the podcast. They said, oh, come on, man. You can tell which one I am. You, it's okay. You can you can say I'm the worst one in the world. No. Hey, well, Tom, to- Tom will. Tom Gibbons will be hurt if uh, if we don't use the nom de guerre that he li- labeled me with. So, so the the one of the two questions that came out was one: How did Troy get the moniker "Worst ER Doc in the World"? And <laughs> well, I guess I just, just answered your question before you asked it. So sorry. Go so ahead. it was Tom Gibbons, but there has to be yeah. a story behind that. There, well. I, you know, I'm Tom and has been a, a mentor and friend and my, my guru. Uh, he's my rogue tiger. And for those of you that don't understand that reference, um, get in the instructor development program and get through, I think it's advanced class where he, he shows, uh, he'll explain that to you. And I won't say any more about that, but he's my rogue tiger. Uh, he, um, was signing a book for me one day and, and he made it out that way. And I, I can't remember who was looking over my shoulder or his shoulder when he was doing that. And it uh, got on this podcast and that podcast and the other, and he's introduced me that way when we've talked together many times. And, 
I love it. I, I, I embrace that in ways that I can never tell you how, how much it means to me that it meant enough to Tom Gibbons to insult me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, well, I, I like that one. I've embraced now after, uh, eight, 19 years. Uh, so, and this, this came out at gunsight. So I, uh, walking around the parking lot there and db goes hey what's up princess and i looked over and i was like where'd you how did you know and where did you hear that from and he goes dude it's just in the ether bro you know like it's just out there and uh the funny thing about that is one of my very first pistol team trips to arizona of all places was where that originated uh i was sleeping in the back of the nine passenger van and somebody said hey wake up princess we're taking a break and it stuck, you know, yep. and it's uh, funny how stuff like that in this community or our community sticks. You just, you can uh, fight it all you want, but it's not going away. So you might as well just embrace it. Well, DB just rattled that one off and had no idea of the backstory on that. And I told him that mm-hmm. and he said, you see, it's just in that like subconscious cop world, man. It's just in there. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> we had a good chuckle over it and I got to tell him the story at a shotgun class later, but, but that was, uh, the moniker thing came up and yeah, then yeah. Caleb Causey was, uh, uh, and Lee Weems were, we're talking about it on a, on a podcast and I'm, I'm listening cause they're friends of mine. And it, it's like being in, the two of them on a podcast is just like sitting in a room, li- listening to them tell jokes and you just can't interject anything. You just have to listen. And I heard that come up and, and I was like, God, this, this just gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> Well, <laughs> the second thing, and, and hopefully we don't dive off too far into the graphic uh, rabbit hole, but is what's the weirdest thing that Troy's ever seen in the ER? And uh, from my uh, experience working in the ER, there were some of them that I would not tell on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, most of mine that I tell have a, have a happy ending for the most part, uh, or they don't, they don't make it into production. I got too many horrible things that I can talk about you out but that's not what can happen but but probably the funniest uh goofiest just who would have figured it thing also shows the resiliency of the body to ballistic trauma uh you wouldn't think this would start with two guys riding a golf cart on a sunday morning playing around at golf but that's how it starts um we got loaded golf cart the two guys and two pairs two sets of clubs and the driver decides to be a smart ass and drive over the uh, ski rope. And I don't know if it was a green or a tee box that it was um, to keep you from driving the cart up on. There's a little barrier they had set up. Well, the ski rope was strung in between four and a half foot long, three eighths inch pieces of rebar that were sharpened on the end, Ooh. jabbed in the ground with a T, uh, welded across the top to Scott to uh, tie the rope to. I'm going to guess the thing weighed four, four and a half pounds. Well, when the golf cart that he tried to drive over the ski rope that was dragging on the ground, he thought he could make it over it, caught on the rope. It pulled those ropes taut like a bowstring. The one on the end uh, came flinging out of the ground with, uh, I'm sure, some like Wiley Coyote sounded, sounded kind of sound to it. And shish kebabs. Now, there's, there's no justice in the world. It didn't hit the dumbass driver. It hit the uh, passenger in the back of the neck, 
and came through his neck and came out his through his jaw, leaving about a foot and a half on the outside of that. Now, the resiliency of that, if you can imagine that knockout punch, Oof. you would think the guy would lose consciousness. He didn't. He grabbed hold of the, uh, the end that came through his jaw and reached back kind of behind him and grabbed the other end to stabilize it. And he said, and the reason he sounded like that was the thing was coming through his mouth. Mm. Uh, so he's got this three inch piece of rebar holding his tongue down. Like he's, he's talking kind of funny, but he's talking, which was pretty amazing. So the paramedics get there and they put some pillows around it and start a couple of large bore IVs and think, gosh, we'd really like to be able to do something for his airway, but there's nothing to do. So they bring him in and we're looking around like, must be one of those Alan Funt, you know, moments here with a candid camera. So we're looking at the thing and we don't know what the hell we're going to do with it because there's no way to really get an airway in through his mouth because his mouth's full of three-inch piece of rebar across it. Missed his tongue, was just holding his tongue down, thankfully. Um, or that would have probably bled enough that he would have drowned in his own uh, blood. So what we did was ended up criking the guy under local. We gave him a little something to settle him down and uh, put a local in and did a cricothyrotomy, put in a shyly uh, tube, took him up to the OR, gave him an inhaled anesthetic, put him to sleep. And it was a slow enough day in the ER that day that I was able to follow this guy's case up to the OR that I was able to uh, uh, pull away from the ER and watch what happened. And, the guys were looking at it, and they're like, well, we don't have anything really to cut this with. And if we did, we'd probably get it so hot we'd cauterize everything in there. So I'd say we wash out the end and pull it out and see if he dies or not because there wasn't really any way to get proximal and control, proximal and distal control of the, of the vasculature and the vessels there to, to see what they were going to do. Well, that's what they did, and he didn't die. And so they put in a tonsillectomy bob and, and – uh, uh, sewed up the hole in the back of his throat, uh, got the oromaxillofacial surgeon dude to come in and, and put some titanium plates and put his jaw back together. And then they uh, did endoscopy everywhere that you can, squirted dye everywhere you can, and he missed everything good. He missed his carotids. He missed his his uh, arterial vasculature. He missed his airway. He missed his esophagus. Everything just seemed to get out of the way of that for some reason. So I went home on like post-op day four and uh, lived to fight another day. How many guys do you think you could take a four and a half foot piece of rebar sharpened on the end, like a spear, put them down on the ground, rear back, shove it through their neck. So it went in the back of their neck, out their jaw and uh, not have them die. I don't know very many. I mean, that's, we think about 124, 147 grains is a heavy nine millimeter bullet. This thing probably weighed four pounds. Right. And it's flying fast enough to shish kebab the dude right through the neck. And that's a pretty decent hit. Yeah. And uh, the guy did just, just fine. So if it's not your day, it's not your day. That could have been one of those things that an inch or so either direction, half an inch either direction would have hit something really, really good. He didn't have any cervical spine injury. He didn't get his cord. He didn't get anything good. He just missed everything. 
And I bet he's got an interesting story when he goes through an airport metal detector (laughs) too. Yeah. Well, it it all came out. So it just came out the way it went in. But sometimes the, that was an interesting moment in the case when the, the surgeon, you know, the main surgeon, uh, the attending put his foot up on the bed, grabbed hold of the thing and, and he owed and pulled it out after they'd washed the end out. It wow. was, uh, it was interesting. Uh, you don't see that every day. No, um, I, I've seen some, uh, seen some pretty, pretty foul ones like, uh, with mechanical injury, but, uh, that one, uh, I think that one takes the cake. Uh, yeah. I was, well, I had 30 years on any art of, you know, to build up cool stuff, you know. So it was, it was by far the oddest thing I'd ever seen. But yeah. on the other side of that, the result, the, the fragility of the human body was pretty amazing on, on display. Uh, well, when you, and, when you talked about fragility of, of human life, that uh, the story with the 177 caliber BB and the two kids playing mm-hmm. in the woods. I mean, yep. Oh, that kid, you know, and the funny thing about that was there were four or five different things that, that happened. Uh, the, the kid that came back to get help couldn't, you know, got, got lost, turned around in the woods and it was a while before his buddy was just sitting there under the tree. And then he was trying to find his way back to where his buddy was. And they wandered around the woods for forever trying to find him. And then the, you know, the, the paramedics to their forever shame, you know, looked at it and said, well, it's been an hour or so and must not have got anything good. Probably just under the skin. It's a BB gun after all. And, uh, yeah, just kind of complacency there blew it off and didn't start lines and didn't start all the other things that anybody else would have done with any other kind of gun in that location, you know? So, yeah, that kid should have died about nine different ways, but it wasn't his time either. Thank goodness. Well, I think that's a good place to end is uh, when it's your time, it's your time. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much it. All right. Thanks, Troy. And by the way, hey, uh, Lee, if you're if you're listening to this one, I got somebody that you didn't. Ha, 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 ha. All right. Episode 65, Gunshot Wounds in Emergency Rooms. Thanks, Troy, again. A reminder, check out today's sponsors, XS Sites, CCW Safe Elite Survival Systems, EDC Belt Company, and don't forget to sign up for the Concealed Carry Podcast giveaway. Last week's Winter Games won a Don't Tread on Me t-shirt. Every week, they're giving away some cool stuff, so sign up. As always, the link is in the show notes. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. I appreciate that. Check in. Give us a uh, give us a review, a rating on uh, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever. Uh, if you've got any like suggestions for upcoming topics or guests, ping me on the podcast. You can get there at offdutyonduty.com. I read the uh, the messages every every day, so... The Off-Duty On-Duty Podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, 
or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.